This is Dialogue with Drake and Dabu. My name is Emma Drake. And I am Sweta Dabu. This is the podcast where we talk about all things policy, politics, and pop culture. Transparency and accountability are cornerstones of a healthy democracy. Access to information requests are how the public can acquire information about how issues, policies, and programs are being managed and developed by government. On PEI, we have increasingly heard about long wait times and heavy redactions when it comes to the fulfillment of these requests and the impact this has on information being publicly available. When talking about transparency, another point of focus these last couple of months have been around non-disclosure agreements, also known as NDAs. In the fall sitting of the Legislative Assembly, a bill was signed, and it was the first of its kind in Canada, which limited the use of NDAs in cases of sexual misconduct. On December 3rd, an article was published entitled, Use of NDAs Has Created Culture of Silence and Fear on UPEI Campus, Former Prof Says. To chat with us about freedom of information as well as NDAs, with us today is journalist, provincial affairs reporter with CBC, and pepper enthusiast, Kerry Campbell. Kerry, thank you so much for joining us today. Our first question to you is, how are you? Oh, I'm doing well. Thank you very much for having me back on your show. Yes, you're part of an elite group of people who have been asked to come back. No, uh, we're very excited to have you here with us. So let's jump right on to things. We are on a topic that some people are aware of, some people aren't. Some people think it's very boring, but we trust today's episode is going to be exciting. So in October of this year, you published the article, Access Delayed, Access Denied. Here's why PEI's information system is broken. This article goes into long wait times for access to information, requests to be fulfilled by the province, as well as the heavy redaction documents uh, that they go through before being submitted. So for our listeners, our first question is, what is an access to information request and what does that look like in terms of process? Who can make one and for what information? Yeah, well, there's all these government records that exist and everybody has a right to access, you know, many of those or most of those. So I guess there's two basic types of requests you would probably make as a as a PEI resident. Uh, we tend to focus on what, what we usually call FOIP. Uh, that stands for the Freedom of Information and Protection of Privacy Act. Um, so th- that is where you would make a, a local request to the PEI government for access to some of the records they have in any government department in I think just about any crown corporation, there's only a a handful of sort of government associated associated entities that you can't obtain records from at all. Um, Legislative assembly records, those are are protected. That's one of them. Um, So that's the FOIP system. Uh, And then there's ATIP, which is access to information I don't know if the P stands for protection of privacy. That's the federal system. I don't go into that as often, but uh, again, it's the same thing, but it's uh, accessing federal government records. So, you know, uh, say a typical thing you might try to get would be uh, government briefing notes for a, for a cabinet minister on, on a topic, you know, to find out, you know, what was the minister told about this, you know, for instance, um, 
the potato wart situation would be an, an obvious example. You would want to know that. You can ask for emails on a certain topic. Now, you don't get everything you ask for. There are in the legislation things that are carved out. Uh, uh, an obvious thing is, you know, some private information, people's uh, personal information. Uh, will be redacted. Um, other things, you know, to protect the security of government systems or to, you know, um, they'll often carve out information that's provided as advice to government. That's probably one of my least favorite exemptions in the legislation, but um, I think the, the idea is that they want um, uh, bureaucrats to feel that they can advise government on certain courses of action and not have to worry that that's going to come out in, in our stories for whatever reason. Of course, it's not just journalists who can file these. Any member of the public can. Uh, for a, a provincial uh, FOIP, you, you, you pay $5 and as an application fee. You might have to pay again, depending on how long it takes them to find the information. And for most departments, you can just do it uh, online. So it's, 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 you know, that part of it is, is, is a lot easier than it used to be. It's, uh, that part's quick. <laughs> After that, though, your mileage may vary. Yes, and, and the, the mileage was definitely described in, in that article and the long wait times that you've had to experience and, and many other folks. So what role does access to information play in our current government system? Like, how does that kind of work in kind of the, the bigger machinery of it all? Well, I think it's a primary tool for the public or for journalists like myself to be able to try to hold government accountable. That's the main thing. I mean, and just to gather information. I mean, there's a lot of information that you should be able to gather without having to go through a, a FOIP for it. But um, I think it's probably better if I try to think of an example. So um, I know this is one I gave, I was talking to the class at Holland College about this recently. Um, this is a, a story I did from a few years ago now. So it, it started with um, what we had seen in a ruling from the Privacy Commissioner about somebody else's Freedom of Information request. And they had simply asked for um, uh, how many suicides had occurred within public institutions in PEI. And it wasn't a very big number, but it was one or two higher than what we could substantiate through, you know, any, any incidences which had been publicly reported. And so that got me trying to dig to find out, um, you know, what had happened that we had never been advised of. And it, anyway, to try to make a long story short, there was a a suicide that took place at Hillsborough Hospital that had never been publicly reported and that government was required under its own legislation to hold uh, a coroner's inquest um, to try to determine if there were any steps that needed to be taken to prevent such a thing from happening again. And, and no inquest had ever been held until we found out about the death and, and then suddenly they scheduled, well, not suddenly, it still took about a year, two years after that, but at this point it was eight years after this person had died. And I mean, the saddest part of this, I think, was that there had been another death that occurred three years after this, another suicide at Hillsborough Hospital. And so the question that was left hanging, and this is something that I was able to actually ask the daughter of the second victim, if there had been a timely um, you know, uh, inquest into the situation around that first death, might they have learned things that could have prevented the second death? Unfortunately, that never happened. 
So there's an example of something that came to light only through freedom of information, an important issue of government accountability, you know, at least for the families involved in this. Um, yeah, so there's an example of, of what this can be used for. That's heartbreaking. And I'm sure for those families, you know, the last thing you're worrying about is is the access to kind of the details on this. You're grieving in that moment. And I think it's government's responsibility to step in and kind of have that due process and do their job in that scenario. And like you said, you know, what could have been learned from the first one to adjust in order to prevent future ones. So, um, yeah, that's that's really sad to hear. And um, just kind of off of that, like what we were seeing in, in the article that you had published was that there are long delays in terms of processing requests, but also heavy redactions where information is being taken out um, when these requests are being fulfilled. So how does that impact democracy if we can't access this information as laid out in the legislation? Well, so an example of a FOIP result that got back after fairly significant delays, but it's not the longest wait, but this was a request for a lot of government records around the, the malware attack, the, the ransomware attack on PEI government servers. That was, I think, March 20. It was just before the pandemic struck when that happened. And so I finally got all my records. I got about 200 pages of documents, but Almost everything was redacted, but, you know, enough wasn't. So there are places where you can see what they redacted. And I think they just went way overboard uh, in terms of what they're allowed to take out, what they should take out. So, for example, I know there was a sentence that described how many recommendations had been made by IT services to make improvements and how many of those had been followed up on yet. And both those numbers were redacted. Um, so the impression being that we're not allowed to know, you know, how many things were improved by government. Um, you know, I understand if they think we're not allowed to know what the specific recommendations are, uh, but they're saying you can't even know how many of those there were. Um, also, uh, you know, I could tell that the, um, the, the volume of data that was accessed by the hackers was also redacted. I understand government maybe doesn't want that out there, but the, the part of the legislation they're using to justify that is, is where it tells them that they, they have the option of severing information if it could reasonably be shown uh, to provide a security risk to their systems. I don't think it provides a security risk to their systems to disclose the volume of data that was accessed in this case. Um, and, and there's a right for Islanders to know more about what happened. Um, and, and they don't right now, this was their data. I mean, this, you know, the government represents them, but it was their personal data that was accessed in these cases. Um, there was uh, a kind of a similar case that happened in, I think it was St. John, New Brunswick. There was a story out a couple of weeks ago. And what struck me is how much more information journalists in New Brunswick were able to get about that attack versus what I've received so far from the PEI government. So um, there's uh, an example uh, on redaction. And, and I think what that does um, in terms of um, long delays, I am still waiting on this is uh, my interest in this file is similar to the one we talked about about Hillsborough Hospital. Um, there was a death at Sleepy Hollow in 2018 and I'm still waiting for the information around that. Um, you know, uh, the, the interest here being the public interest, as the John Howard Society has acknowledged, being to 
for the public to be able to know that every effort was made to provide the necessary health care to the person who died or to ease their passing if this was unavoidable. Um, you know, there are measures that you, you maybe expect to be taken if a person's incarcerated um, in a situation like that. I've been waiting for, I mean, we're going on three years now. This is a request I made under the McLaughlin government. I still don't have the documents. Interesting, though, because in that kind of first example you gave with the redactions, like quantitative data like that, like how could you justify that that's a concern around, um, you know, the security of the system and things like this? Like it's it's just a number at the end of the day, right? Like it's kind of bizarre. I don't know. <laughs> My two cents on that. But um, in the article, you described a specific case of a long wait times, kind of as we were talking about in the other questions. But for our listeners, you know, what what does that wait time look like? You know, is there communication back and forth? Is there kind of a, a notification of we have to extend this? Is there a justification? Um, you know, you on kind of the, the user end side of that, what does that look like when you're waiting for requests? Well, something that has been kind of, I mean, what's happened in a case like the Sleepy Hollow one is I am waiting for the privacy commissioner to have the time uh, to issue a review. So there's kind of a, there's two stages to this, assuming you don't do as well as you want in the first stage. So the first stage is you request the information from the PEI government and hopefully get something back. Sometimes you don't, maybe we'll talk about that. But then the second stage is if you're not happy with the information you got back, if you're like me and you think too much of this is redacted. And my biggest problem is I mostly can't tell what was redacted. I can tell there's some things that I don't think should have been redacted. And then I don't know, right? If they would redact the volume of data, what else have they redacted here that they maybe shouldn't have? So then you go to the privacy commissioner. The privacy commissioner is an independent officer of the legislature, so not a part of government. So she and her office, uh, they conduct all the reviews when People are unhappy with what they get back from their FOIP request to the PEI government. Um, so that's where I find for me, my longest delays are is because that office is, they're simply overworked. Um, and so it is a, a, a fairly extreme, I think, bottleneck on the system right now. And we're going to chat a little bit about that later, about uh, the role that the Privacy uh, Commissioner's Office plays uh, in access to information. But we're going to touch on something you brought up before, which is the cost of an access to information request. Currently, uh, there's an initial fee of $5, but there may be additional costs for requests that require more than three hours to process. Um, if photocopying is required, then whoever's making the request is, has to pay $0.08 cents per page. This means that for larger requests, such as, you know, the 200 page uh, access to information requests you had with regards to malware, uh, the cost may be several hundreds or even thousands of dollars. Now, you know, in theory, we know that, you know, everyone in PI is able to make this request from government. But how do you feel that this cost uh, affects accessibility of information to the public? Yeah, I mean, it. it, it, it it's, it's a, a barrier for anyone who can't pay. Um, I, here's one little pro tip that can help you save a few dollars off your info request. Um, I don't think it's actually in the legislation, but for years now, I've been in the habit of always asking for the documents in electronic format. 
So you don't have to pay the eight cents per photocopy page if you do that. Uh, if the document, if the record package is small enough, they will email it to you as a PDF. If it's too big, they will ding you. I think it's $11 for a USB stick and they'll provide you a fresh USB stick with the data on it. So there, uh, you can save some of your money there. It's funny, I went years without having to pay a processing fee for my freedom of information requests, but now I find I'm being asked to pay again. There is an allowance in the legislation. You can make an argument, and I think it's easier, definitely if you're a journalist, you can make an argument that the information is in the public interest. Uh, and that, um, they're required to um, consider a fee waiver in that case. So, I mean, years ago, uh, I found I was constantly having to argue. I would get, you know, a, a fee assessment back in the hundreds of dollars and argue, well, this is a matter of public interest, et cetera, et cetera. Um, they would reduce the fees, eliminate the fees. And then for years, I just was never charged anything beyond the $5 uh, uh, initial fee. Now I find that I, I am charged again. And even though I work for CBC um, and there's no strict budget that anyone's advised me of for what I can pay for this stuff, you can be pretty sure I'm going to get called into my supervisor's office pretty quickly once I get into a few hundred dollars with this stuff. And, and we're going to have a talk about what information we need and not. So I'm trying to go through the process of making the arguments that these things are in the public interest uh, so we don't have to pay for them. Um, if you don't, if you're not successful with government in doing that, then you can appeal to the privacy commissioner, add to her workload, um, which I'm always reluctant to do. Um, there is a flip side to this. Now, I mean, I, I want everyone to be able to get their information and I want them to be able to get it quickly. I think what we found with the federal system with ATIP, they, they got rid of the processing fees and suddenly the information, the, the system became overloaded and wait times, you know, which, I mean, this isn't always the reason why. Sometimes the wait times are a year or more and there's no real reason why that should be the case. But uh, there was a significant increase in wait times because so many people were now filing requests because the cost barrier wasn't there. It's not to say that you can't eliminate the cost, but then you have to be ready on the resource side, the human resource side, to make sure that this doesn't just bring the system to a standstill, basically, because there's far more requests than can be handled. But yeah, as it is, I know there are people, you know, PEI is a small place and you kind of learn who some of the people are who are advocates on particular issues, who are, um, you know, passionate about trying to track down the government documents on things. And, and I know in some cases they've been assessed fees in the hundreds or thousands of dollars. Um, even for the CBC, I, I don't think I could ever, I don't, we would never be able to pay it in the thousands of dollars. And there are individuals who are, are facing these types of, of charges on matters, which I think they could make a really good argument that it's in the public interest. So I hope that's not a barrier for anyone. It shouldn't be a barrier, but the way the system is set up, it certainly can't be. Uh, which, uh, you know, just hearing to you talk, this kind of brought up two new questions. The first one is, you know, how do you prove that the uh, request you have submitted is a matter of public interest? What does that process look like? But then also, at which point during the request being kind of fulfilled, do you find out uh, how much you have to pay in fees? So when does the fee assessment come? 
um, it comes a, a little further into the process. And the funny thing is I found a lot of times you get the fee assessment and you find that they've already conducted um, the work necessary or much of the work necessary um, to find your records. So the, the fee in that case is, is a bit of an odd thing. It's like, well, you have to pay for this, but if you don't, we've already exhausted, you know, the human resources that were required here. So they're kind of out there regardless of whether you pay or not in some cases. I don't know if that's always the case. I know it has been sometimes. Um, so yeah, the fee comes a little, you get, first you get the acknowledgement of your request and they have, oh God, I should have been, I should have, I should have read the legislation before I came into this interview. They have 20 or 30 days to respond, right? You guys maybe remember better than I do, uh, but that's your initial response. Um, anyway, the, you get the fee estimate a little further down in the process. Uh, and then like I am now with a couple of requests haggling over fees um, and this can can take a few weeks. Um, you know, it's I'm not always in a position to immediately respond to what I've got because I've got work pressures day to day. And then you send it off finally, and then you wait a week and you hear what they say about your your haggling. And yeah, so that part takes a while. I forget what what was the second part of that the first or the first part of that question, Sweta is how would you go about uh, proving that the request is a, a matter of public interest? But also you're absolutely right, it's 30 days that they have to respond. Yeah, okay, thank you, thank you. Um, I know it's laid out in the legislation and every time I have to launch an appeal to the Privacy Commissioner, I have to reread the parts of the legislation, but it is laid out in there in terms of um, how you define the public interest. There's also, I mean, there's a large body of decisions um, which it's good to go over decisions from our privacy commissioner and, and even sometimes, you know, people will cite decisions of other privacy commissioners, especially in provinces where the legislation is similar. I think ours is based on Alberta's legislation. So um, there is um, a large body of work that you can refer to in terms of determining what's in the public interest. We always want to kind of be careful here that we don't end up setting, I don't know if it's a hard precedent, but um, you know, if we if we fail in a decision on this and that that is something that can be referred to in future to say, well, you know, we didn't waive your fee in this case. And so this is similar. and We're not going to waive your fee here. So it's uh, there can be more at stake than just the one um, the, the one set of documents that, that you're working on. But, yeah, it's all set out in the legislation in terms of. The, the fee waivers. Um, I mean, it doesn't lay it out step by step how much of a waiver or whatever, but you know, it gives some idea in there what constitutes a public interest. And it's interesting you mentioned kind of what's stated in the legislation versus what actually happens in practice and how that also differs from other times actually in practice. There seems to be a particular disconnect and not only with the fees, but also when we look at, for example, the wait times and processing and, and something we talked about in your article earlier. Um, and so there are big challenges with this because um, it 
people are unable to process the request in an appropriate and efficient manner. Now, the PEI Information Commissioner Denise Duran stated in a CBC PEI interview in June 2021 that, quote, it does feel a little bit overwhelming. Our heads are still above water, but the water level is kind of rising. So one of the ways to try and address that would be to have more staff. Uh, Now, also identified in that article, government did add one additional staff person to that team. So two questions on this. The first one is, do you feel this is an adequate investment into staff capacity to address the long delays described in your piece, Access Delayed, Access Denied? Well, no. And I think you'll find actually that article you're referring to where the privacy commissioner talked about, you know, her head being just barely above water. Um, After that, in fact, this is, I think, about a month ago, the privacy commissioner's annual report 2020 came out. Uh, This is a line that really stood out for me because I've never seen it put in such stark terms. Here's what she said in that annual report. The amount of work required has become too overwhelming for our office to adequately manage anymore. Um, that's pretty stark um, from the privacy commissioner there. So you don't need to take my word on whether they're adequately staffed. Um, She has clearly stated they can't keep up anymore. Um, Yeah. And it's interesting too, kind of the evolution over time, Um, you know, and we saw that this is included in, for example, like the Health Information Act of 2017, as well as FOIP legislation in 2019. How do you think those wait times have evolved? Do you think this is something kind of like that's always been there and that, you know, we're only kind of seeing it come to light now because it's in the media more? Or do you think there's been kind of an evolution and increased interest in freedom of information? I think one of the things the privacy commissioner has said is that she believes that people um, are more aware of what they're entitled to, what their rights are, what they can have access to. Um, And no doubt podcasts like this one will inform them even further as to what they're entitled to. So that creates more demands on the system. Um, There was a calculation I made. I'm just trying to see here if it was in that story that, that, that led us off on this. Um, the access delayed, access denied story. Um, anyway, oh, here it is. So I'm quoting myself here. I've never done this before. This is weird. In 2017, one in 12 information requests ended up being appealed to the commissioner. In 2019, that number was one in five. I think that's a pretty key figure. Um, so it's not just that more people are making requests, but more people are appealing requests and a larger proportion of requests are going to appeal. One thing that that suggests to me, I mean, this is again, the privacy commissioner says people understand their rights more now, and so they're more likely to appeal. I I have to wonder if people just aren't also just more dissatisfied with what they're getting back from government, and if maybe some of that doesn't hang on how government has been responding to access requests, because I feel that that's been my experience in the last couple of years certainly. And one thing we haven't touched on yet, but I think this is important, and this is kind of what prompted me to write that story in the first place. It's called a deemed refusal. And it's basically where you make a freedom of information request. And well, technically, it means they didn't meet the deadline. You know, that 30-day deadline that that Sweda was, was vouching for us. But it's beyond, in my experience, it goes beyond missing the deadline. It's just access requests that disappear into the ether. And if you don't follow up on them, 
um, then they're gone. Um, I used to feel like I could trust once I put a request in the system, I would get something back. I might not be happy with what I got back, but I would get something back. But what I found in the last couple of years, and, and I hope this is going to get better now, and I'm sure the pandemic played a role in this, but I, it wasn't just the pandemic. You put in a request and then you would, well, so there's one specific example in that story. This was a request to the uh, premier's office for a briefing notes. And I made it, they responded. So I made it in to say it was in March of, was it 2020 or 2019? Um, they responded, no, it wouldn't have been 2019 because this was the Dennis King government, 2020. They responded and said, we have until, you know, uh, what such and such a date, the 30 days. They asked for the one extension they were allowed. It took us into April. And then I never heard anything back at all. It was just gone. And then finally in August, I started wondering, well, where is my request? I thought maybe I got it by email and I didn't notice it to come in, search for it. I started emailing everyone that I could and phoning access and privacy services. Nobody would respond to me for a couple of weeks. Um, and then finally someone got back to me and said, okay, well, no, we're, we're going to get you your information. There was no explanation for why it hadn't come. Uh, for the first time ever, I did a FOIP request of my FOIP request. I always think about doing this because I'd love to see what happens on the other end. So I did that. It didn't explain to me why my request got dropped, but it did show that the premier's office had clearly been told in April that they had a deadline to respond of April 4th or they would be in deemed refusal. And then the chain just ended. So no one provided the documents and they just let it sit there. There are other cases for myself and for some of my colleagues here where the same kind of thing happened on, on other requests, we just nothing came back. And then you check in with apps. So we've been told things like that just the people had somehow the file got dropped. Uh, one time I was, and, and I, I believe the person who told me this, they said, well, there was a, a family situation they had and, um, you know, they just never got, they forgot about my request. And it just, it happened a lot in the last couple of years and it, it shouldn't happen at all. So it's called deemed refusal, but there's there's more to it than that. And I just have a quick follow up on that too, Carrie. Like, there's a couple things here. Do you feel as though the reason why they're being lost or just simply not communicated on is because they are being communicated on, but not in a way in which there are quote unquote receipts that could be identified through kind of a freedom of information request to explain why that is? Or do you feel perhaps it's because there just genuinely is a backlog and with the limited staff, which, you know, we, we've seen over time and, and with interviews and, and with the, the report recently, like there just genuinely isn't enough staff to process it. So maybe there's kind of a process there where some things get put to the back burner, et cetera, et cetera. Like, do you think it's maybe a combination thereof? Um, because when something is legislated that you can have access to and there's a process in which is out, outlined in that legislation and there are ways in which you can address that if it's not meeting it and, but now there's no explanation that to me seems a little bit bizarre so what do you think that is that that they're just being lost well i mean to explain i guess what a deemed refusal what that means under the legislation it's the same as if they said you can't have the information that is the end result. So they are saying you can't have the informa information, but not actually telling you that. Now, as to why it ends up in that situation, I guess we have two possibilities. Either 
they were just not good at managing the workflow or something. And it really did just not only get delayed, but just got forgotten. Um, or it is what a deemed refusal says it is. It is government saying, you can't have this, but you know, we're just, instead of telling you that, we're just not going to provide it. Uh, we're going to miss all our deadlines or whatever. I can't say which one of those it is. I know that's what I hope to learn when I did my FOIP request on my FOIP request. And I think um, you if you read between the lines, I think you probably arrive at the conclusion that it's not the government um, just kind of forgot to deliver that, but it's just the government on some level somewhere, but I didn't have it in an email, decided we're not going to deliver this. And certainly um, the two weeks of radio silence I had trying to find out what happened to my request, uh, I think that speaks to that outcome, that it was a conscious decision not to provide it because I did see in the emails, the people at the APSO office, Access and Privacy Services, who, who coordinate these things were, co were communicating with the premier's office saying, you know, the requester wants to know what happened to their file and yet still no one was getting back to me. Um, so I don't know, it's, you, I don't know how you interpret that, but anyway, I think safest to go with, it's a deemed refusal. So it's one in the same that they decided you can't have the, the, the information. And, and it's interesting that, you know, you bring up, uh, the premier's office in this, because in February of 2021, uh, premier King stated that his government's intentions to embark on renewing the Freedom of Information and Protection of Privacy Act uh, to provide greater public confidence and more accountability for government. Uh, we know, of course, that this act needs to undergo comprehensive review every six years or so. Um, in your piece uh, that we have been talking about a lot in this interview, uh, you come to the conclusion that changing the Freedom of Information and Protection of Privacy Act won't necessarily make it function better. Uh, the decision on what to release or not to release resides with the deputy minister in each government department. Those deputy ministers are in turn directly answerable to the premier, improving how if freedom of information works on PEI ultimately would have to start at the top. So first part is, what legislative changes do you feel would be welcome in future amendments to uh, this legislation? I mean, I'm sure there are changes that could be made, but I don't know if I have a big list. And, and as I said in the story, I don't know if that is the, the key change that needs to be made. But, you know, one thing that we keep hearing about, because, as you say, this legislation has a requirement to be reviewed every several years and, and it's been done before. Um, one of the recommendations that keeps coming up is there should be more proactive disclosure. So that means government makes records available to the public. Nobody has to ask for them. Um, they just, you know, and, and we've seen that happen. Wade McLaughlin actually did a lot of that with expense reporting for people like cabinet ministers and deputy ministers. That stuff is posted. You used to have to file a freedom of information request for those things um, so that we could have more proactive disclosure. Another thing that I think would, would, would um, benefit the public and benefit journalists, unless you're the person who got the information request and you're sitting on a big scoop, um, other jurisdictions, including the federal government, will, will make it not that difficult for anyone to receive the, the documents that you got from your request. I think some provinces actually post those, um, you know, as proactive disclosures. Uh, last time I checked with ATIP, the federal system, you could search through everybody else's 
freedom of information requests and then ask to get the documents that they received. That would be a welcome addition to our system. But I think really, I mean, I've, I think some of the examples we've talked about for me show that the, the legislation that exists is not being followed uh, as it should be. And so I think one thing that needs to change if, if you grant if, that I might be correct in that, then um, we need to have a better adherence to the legislation that we have. Um, and, and that would hopefully mean that fewer people feel they need to go to the privacy commissioner because they don't think the government has provided the documents that they're entitled to. So um, stricter adherence to the legislation we have, um, not allowing requests to go into deemed refusal because I'm not the only one who's been dealing with that. Um, those are some things that I'd like to see. Um, and I know, I remember when I first learned that deputy ministers are the ones responsible in each department ultimately for deciding what goes out. I was really surprised at that. And um, I don't know, I don't know if there's a better way. I mean, it would be nice if we could just leave all of this in the hands of someone like the privacy commissioner. I don't know if that's feasible. I'd love it if it was. Uh, that would require all those resources to go into her department. I'm not aware that any other jurisdiction does it that way. Um, so uh, assuming that we have to ask the government department for the documents, which that department might not actually want us to have because they don't want us to learn these things, um, I guess the way we just have to trust and, and hope for um, a more rigorous adherence to, to the legislation as it exists. And I think, you know, what you've just been talking about really comes back to what you said in the article, which is that improving freedom of information uh, has to start at the top. So what do you see um, as kind of steps to change the culture uh, around access to information from the top? Uh, we've spoken about that a little bit, looking at uh, ad adhering to legislation, um, maybe moving the final decision to someone else, but what kind of other steps would you envision? I mean, what I'm talking about, it's just, um... Yeah, uh, uh, adhering to the letter and the spirit of the legislation. And as I think what I said in the article, I stand by that that really does start at the top. So it starts with the premier who um, he has stated publicly that, you know, um, the, to some degree the transparency or whatever is important to his government. I don't think he said it as often as we would have heard from previous premiers, to be honest. But it's not enough for him to say that publicly. He has to make that clear around uh, the table of deputy ministers uh, for them to take back to their departments. Uh, they have to make that clear through the APSO office. And I, I don't, I don't want to make it sound like I'm faulting any of the people who work in APSO, by the way. Um, I, I, I find that I think they're quite fair. Uh, and you know, I, what I think I learned in that one FOIP of my FOIP request I did is that they were sort of, they seemed to be advocating for me and, and coming up against a, a, a department in the premier's office that just wasn't providing information in a timely manner. Um, so I think it, it does need to be clear though, from the premier on down, if, if they want, want to uh, respect the letter and spirit of the legislation, then that has to be the message. And I know they have a new uh, policy manual that's floating around for how they, they fulfill these. I haven't had a chance to look at it yet. There's hundreds and hundreds of pages. Um, 
but you know, I guess that can be something that's written into their policies as well. I don't know if it is or not. Interesting. I think, um, yeah, I, I think kind of just based on everything that we're saying that it's not just kind of what's written in terms of word for word, letter for letter in the legislation, you know, even if there are changes because it's not being followed right now, but what does that look like from really a, a cultural shift from the top? So definitely, definitely agree. And it wouldn't be a dialogue episode amidst the global pandemic if we didn't talk about COVID-19. <laughs> so in September 2021, you asked the Chief Public Health Office regarding Section 30 of the FOIP Act, which states as followed, information shall be disclosed if risk of harm to environment or public health, whether or not a request for access is made, the head of the public body shall, without delay, disclose to the public to an affect a group of people to any person or to any applicant information about a risk of significant harm to the environment or the health and safety of the public to the affected group of people of the person or the applicant or the information the disclosure of which is for any reason clearly in the public interest Whew, it's a mouthful <laughs> so this was in regards to the province releasing statistics around the numbers of fully vaccinated staff in individual schools on PEI as opposed to aggregated data. Now, these numbers are still not available, though we know that the department has put forward what we know as the vaccine or test policy, which has led to an overall higher rate of vaccines. So question on that is, why do you feel these numbers have not been made public? <laughs> well, that's a big question. Why have they not been made public? I mean, there's a was a push and pull that is probably still at play here. And sort of in, in the framing of that question around that part of the legislation, I, I was trying to get at that because um, there is this public health interest. And, you know, as the start of the school year, when we were asking these questions, there were a lot of parents who really wanted to know and, and probably still want to know this about the schools where their children go and the adults that their children spend their days with. Um, uh, the push and pull has been, I guess, the privacy interests of the people involved. But I mean, I, the, I find that sometimes, certainly for me as a journalist, and I think a lot of parents felt this way when this was uh, going on, um, the province is, is too quick to rely on privacy as a reason not to provide data. And the reason I wanted to get into this section of the legislation is because this actually overrides privacy concerns, as I recall um, my read of, of, of the legislation at the time. Um, so I thought that might be pertinent in this case. Now, I think it had been at the time back in September adequately explained to me in an email from someone who understands the legal repercussions and the, and, and the, the practical applications better than I do, that this was not a situation under the legislation where you would trigger um, this sort of duty to provide public information about a health risk. Um, but I still think, I mean, we have this natural uh, inclination on PEI within government to try to keep things private, I think, because we're a small place. Um, anything that might, this is why I have to fight to learn about things like deaths in, in public facilities, um, because we want to protect people and families uh, 
because everybody knows everyone. And that's a natural, um, that's a natural thing to want to try to do that. And, and I respect that, but I think it just, it can go too far. And this is a, a perfect example. You have issues of public safety and the legislation does tell us that in some cases, those override the privacy concerns. Um, I, I don't feel that's always been uh, reflected in the public decisions, the policy decisions, uh, the decisions around it, access to information that have been made. Um, and so that's why I wanted to bring that up at that time. As you, as you, as you said, I think the initial question was, why do we still not have those numbers? Um, I guess that's part of it. I know there's been um, other, other people have said before about, you know, the, um, I guess the role that unions might play in this, um, in trying to uh, protect the privacy information of their members, those kinds of things. I'm not privy to any of that stuff, but I think the fact that we still don't have it, that, that speaks a lot for itself, I think. And just an, another quick follow-up on that. It's, in this particular case, interesting because while there is kind of a recognition of, of the privacy side of things, if, if that's what's being used kind of as the, the argument to keep this information withheld, um, you know, as you said, there are hundreds of parents that are worried about, oh my goodness, you know, what situation am I putting my kid into, you know, in a publicly funded institution and you don't have the information and you don't have access to the ability to make an informed choice because you, you don't have the information in the first place. And so I think this is just maybe one example of many, but in a particularly high risk scenario, I know in, in other projects uh, we've seen that Oftentimes, like you said, PI is seen as, oh, well, there's just so few people. And, you know, while we want to give this information, we can't. But what is interesting, at least in what I've seen, is there's never kind of a explanation as to, okay, so what is the threshold when it comes to privacy? Because freedom of information comes first and acting in the best interest of public comes first and access to that info is is the first part. Then if there is a concern of privacy, that is absolutely protected. But have you in your experience seen any explanation around what are those thresholds of privacy? When do they kick in and what scenarios? Like, is there a percentage of population? Uh, is there kind of an analysis? What does that look like? Is there any clarification on that? No, I think it's um, uh, a kind of a nebulous thing to try to grasp onto. I mean, there are thresholds and I know, and so in some data reporting, for example, from StatsCan, they'll suppress data if, and I don't know what the threshold is, but you know, if there are uh, fewer than five people that would fit into this category, then they suppress the number of that kind of thing. Um, that is a kind of a quantifiable thing, but I think when we talk about you know decisions around access to information or around public policy, um, is not as cut and dried in that, as that. And and I do find that the default position on PEI is to come down on the side of privacy. And I think, you know, what you're saying, Carrie, is very reminiscent of the article with the Privacy Commissioner where they said, um, you know, the first priority goes to looking at uh, privacy concerns and access to information comes kind of after, which is the opposite sequence of, of what Emma was suggesting earlier. 
which is also interesting. But, you know, we have you here, uh, coincidentally, the day after you you published um, a very well-received investigative piece around non-disclosure agreements. Now, this last fall sitting, as you were covering the Provincial Legislative Assembly, you covered a number of bills uh, that were brought forward. And one of these was by MLA Lynn Lund uh, to limit the use of non-disclosure agreements in in cases of sexual misconduct. Um, According to the bill, these could only come into play if such an agreement is the expressed wish and preference of the person who's putting forward uh, the complaint. Now, on December 3rd, just this last Friday, you published an article entitled, Use of NDAs has created a culture of silence and fear on the UPI campus, former prof says. Now, how did you come to write this article and what are you kind of hoping to come out of it? Well, I mean, what I've been hearing from people just in the last 24 hours since the story came out is, um, I think a lot of people in the campus community were waiting for this story to be told. And it's one of those stories where everyone seemed to have some general awareness of this, but nobody had, um, you know, kind of committed to an official telling of it. And, and it is kind of difficult to do that. I mean, the whole point with the non-disclosure agreement is to prevent information from coming out, um, you know, for whatever the reason might be. Um, so the way this story finally came together, I mean, I had a colleague who was trying to get this story out like six years ago and made uh, a significant amount of progress, but never quite, we never quite got there. Um, so what happened in this case, uh, before Lynn Lund had introduced that legislation, you might remember back in the spring sitting, would have started, I don't know if she got any of the questions in February or, or if it was into March, but she started to ask questions during QP about NDAs. And the first time or two she did this, um, the Justice Minister, Blois Thompson, um, you know, would give the line basically, well, we'll take that question under advisement and come back with information. And then a few weeks after she had still not received any information, I think she woke as she stood up in question period one day, it was, I think, fairly indignant about the fact that, you know, there had been all this information provided on all these other topics, but not on this topic around NDAs and particularly on their effect on, on you know, m- mostly women who might have been victims of, of, of uh, sexual harassment or, or, or misconduct and, and silenced as a result of that. Um, and so finally, I did a story on it, and it was on Compass, and it would have been on our website. And that's when I started to get people reaching out to me. Um, so it's clear that people had been waiting for this story to hopefully start to come out. Now, I mean, at that point, it was nothing about UPEI. There was nothing specifically said about UPEI. And yet, I mean, I think the understanding was this is an issue on campus. So I had to wonder, there's a source in, in our story that's anonymous, and, and, and that is a person who started reaching out to me at that point. I think also as the awareness that this topic was being discussed, as that got around, I think Lynn Lund also started to hear from more people. But I certainly did, starting back in the spring sitting, and then as the legislation came out, there was more and more. And then finally, I had some time just to make a lot of calls to people um, on and around campus, uh, what we needed was to just kind of get uh, enough of an understanding that these had taken place to satisfy ourselves and our lawyers that we could could definitively say that. Um, of course, um, the the Kate Tillichuk, the former professor at UPEI, came forward and was basically the voice for this story, uh, and, and that pushed it along immeasurably as well. 
I don't think it could have happened without someone taking that step and, and willing to put themselves out there, which surprising how many, um, you know, you th- it, it, it surprised me that in, in the world of academia, uh, which is supposed to be about the open exchange of, of ideas and information, et cetera, knowledge, that this kind of knowledge is, is quite easily suppressed and it's difficult to find people uh, to talk about it. But I think the biggest reason is because there was just not uh, a specific understanding of this. There was a general understanding that this was going on, but few people who could definitively say, yes, this is what happened. Wow, that's that's so interesting. And also, I think a little disheartening to hear how all of this uh, came together. Uh, you know, I think when we were t- looking at uh, the proceedings around the NDA uh, debates this fall sitting, I don't know if anyone really expected uh, UPI to kind of come to light out of that, but people were certainly talking. So what were some of the major roadblocks that you fa- you faced during this process trying to write this article? Of course, you know, when NDAs are involved, you have legal teams, you have kind of a cone of silence that's implemented. So how did that affect the investigation? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the biggest impediment is that you're trying to do a story about efforts to prevent information from coming out. So it's, uh, there's a bit of a roadblock that's put up there. I got nothing from the university. I didn't get, I have yet to receive one sentence in response to this, except, um, you know, the initial acknowledgement from the first email I sent saying, uh, we have your email and we'll see what information we can get for you. And then there was radio silence after that. Um, yeah, I mean, mostly it was just, I think uh, it was just a matter of someone finally having the time to do all the checking um, to be confident in this. Um, and we don't always have that, um, even though PEI, I think we have uh, for the size of province that we are, uh, uh, we have quite a few journalists that work here, which is great, but uh, we have a lot of demands on them. We have the same demands as other provinces, like at the CBC, we still have the same amount of airtime to fill. It's hard. Um, to find time to allow someone to do any kind of investigative work. And that's what this needed, even though after the fact, I know it seems to, even to me and to a lot of others, I think it's like, well, yeah, this information was just out there. It's almost a no brainer. Uh, People knew this was happening, but it still required a lot of legwork um, to make it happen. The one thing I hope comes out of this, and um, I don't know, that's the thing. There's there's so much you can't get to. I cannot talk to the three people who are at the heart of this story. Um, the three people that we know signed NDAs. Um, so, yeah, I, I just can't talk to them. But one thing that I think I have come to understand from just from knowing their circumstances, knowing that they left the campus, um, little bits and pieces from the people who knew them. I think this had an extraordinary impact on their lives. I don't know, and if I did, I I couldn't say at this point the particulars about the situations that they came forward to report, but I think the process of reporting in this case for them and what came after, um, I, I, I feel like this has changed their lives irrevocably. And even though it's been the better part of a decade, I think they're still um, dealing with the repercussions from that. And that to me is, is the most striking thing. Uh, and I hope I'm able to somehow confirm that and, and, and relay that because that seems to be 
maybe the most important takeaway. And there's a, there's a, I think there's a certain amount of national interest in this story because I think this is what's happening all across the country. Um, and so I think that might be the lesson that needs to be learned. It's like the systems that are set up um, presumably to protect people. Um, I, I suspect they take a really heavy toll on the people that come forward, which may be out of all proportion or, or not, because I don't know what happened, but it seems like it might be out of all proportion with the incidents that sparked this, or if not, at least, um, you know, if people are coming forward to report legitimate things that occurred, then this should not be the outcome for them. And in, in some ways, it's very discouraging to hear, you know, about the repercussions because this isn't an isolated incident. Uh, you know, of course, last week uh, we had Kate McKenna on the show to talk about her investigative piece on drink spiking in PEI. And even over the last week, we've seen different articles come out about people who, you know, have done what women are always told to do, which is go forward, report, follow due process, and then we're just led down by you know, a system and then see anything go anywhere. So I think it's it's disheartening to hear um, how these women's lives are still being affected almost a decade later. And, you know, hopefully they get some peace out of it, seeing this article come to light and, and we're able to see uh, changes come to the system down the line. Uh, but talking of, you know, systemic changes, the article point mentions that uh, the confidentiality uh, requirements are written within the university's fair treatment policy, which requires complainants in cases of harassment and sexual harassment to maintain the degree of confidentiality necessarily to ensure congenial and collegial relations among members of the university community. How do you expect this fair treatment policy and all related confidentiality policies really to change given this new, legis uh, this new NDA legislation? I'm not a lawyer, um, but I mean, I know, so under the current fair treatment policy, there's this confidentiality requirement, which I, I assume that's the same as a non-disclosure agreement, um, especially once you ask people to sign it and, and to say that they won't share information. So um, the, the onus, as I read the current policy, is on the complainant and, and, and the person who is the subject of the complaint that, as you say, they have to maintain that degree of confidentiality. And, and as I understand the application of this policy, that means that at a certain point in this process, you sign the confidentiality agreement saying that you will not talk about what happened. Um, and that policy, I remember looking at, I was surprised how old it is. I think it dates back to 2002. And I think the last update was somewhere later in that decade, maybe around 2005 or 2007 or something as, as the policy is written on the university's website. It is certainly, it certainly seems to be out of step with the year 2021 to have a policy on campus for people to report sexual misconduct uh, that includes a requirement that the victims of that misconduct um, not talk about what happened to them. Um, you know, things have changed since this policy was developed. And as you say, the legislation is coming into effect. Uh, I can't say for sure without the legal expertise, but I, I think that legislation, it comes into effect in May, uh, unless cabinet brings it in sooner. I expect that will require 
uh, a change in, in this type of policy that dictates that victims have to remain silent, um, you know, for the purposes of collegiality and congeniality on, on campus. Um, and, and I think whether or not the legislation dictates that needs to change, I think, I think our times are probably saying that it's time to update that policy. Well, I, I was just Googling really quickly while you were talking and, and it's just, it's perfectly right. You know, the version date on the fair treatment policies from 2005 uh, reviewed in 2007. Uh, and of course we know that the sexual violence policy of the university came into play later um, in 2018, I believe, yes. Uh, so, you know, there have been more things done, but I think the it's, it's disappointing to hear that the initial policy itself is so close, is so old, sorry. And um, I, should, I should clarify, I'm not familiar with the sexual violence policy. I, I should probably read up on that. So uh, I, I'm not up on that, but I, do, I did talk to a lot of people that had their complaints routed through the fair treatment policy. The one biggest takeaway I had from, from someone who was familiar with this is they said this was set up um, to protect the institution as opposed to the people, um, you know, who use the policy. Now, Carrie, uh, given the attention that this article has been garnering over the last few days, uh, what is there something in the works for any potential follow-ups on the article or what's the way forward from here? Oh, certainly. I mean, I think our hope was uh, by putting this out there, we would um, get more information coming into us. And that has certainly been the case. I don't know. Um, where specifically it's going to go. I mean, I have an idea for my next follow-up. I can't tell you right now until I publish that story. Um, but ultimately, I think that the story, I, I, I hope to be able to tell her that someone can tell, and it might not even be about UPEI. It might not even be about these cases. And, and maybe it has been told, but it may need to be told again, just about what it means to the people who go through this process. That That's... You know, there's a lot of other stories that I think I should be told and, and I hope to tell in, in this particular case um, and not even just UPEI's case because this is across the country. But I think that is the, the biggest story that needs to come out of this is uh, how this whole process affects um, the people who, who may be victims in these cases. We'll keep an eye out for that and, and to any follow-ups that may happen in the future um, and future stories and accounts of uh, survivors or complainants or people who signed NDAs. Uh, but now that we are at the end of our formal interview section, we have to move to the cornerstone of our dialogue episodes, and that's the beer panel. Really, it's, it's a beer panel in name only at this point. I think over the last uh, number of months, we've seen people recommend everything from books to corn mazes to recipes to their favorite desserts. So, Carrie, as our special guest today, what would you like to recommend to our listeners? Well, it's, I guess it can't be a recommendation, more like... Um a fanciful request or, or a, recollection, a recollection of what has been my all-time favorite beer. Um, I don't think you can still get, I'm hoping someone reaches out to tell me that this is available again somewhere or that maybe someone gets the idea that we should start making that again. Um, this was a beer, I think the last time I got it was a couple of years ago from the PEI Brewing Company. Uh, it was what they called their Szechuan Stout. 
It was a stout, which I love this time of year, especially I start drinking um, darker beers again. And it was uh, infused with the, the flavor of Szechuan pepper, uh, which sounds kind of crazy. And the first time I had one of those, I was like, uh, it was spicy. And it was like, this is weird. I, my beer's not supposed to taste like this. But then I just loved it. And it's not like you're going to sit down and, and drink three of them. And it's not even like you're going to have one of those every day. But I knew they were a limited supply run. So I did stock up at one point back then. And I would just kind of go down once a week, maybe on a Sunday down into the cellar and find one and, and bring it up. And well, I don't know. Sounds kind of maybe sad for me. I still think about those Szechuan stouts once in a while. I asked about them at the brewing company once, and they said it was a, a formula that from some woman on PEI, as far as they knew. And so um, I don't know if it was something that they owned the rights to or what, but they had done it and I think maybe won some award with it, but, and then it was gone. If anyone's ever had one, maybe they know what I'm talking about. If anyone knows where I can get one, please let me know where. This is the next big investigative journalism piece. <laughs> where is the recipe for this beer? Please contact at Carrie Campbell, CBC PEI. <laughs> I've thought about just trying to make my own, a stout and add, but I don't think I can, do, I don't think that'll work. I don't think I want bits of Szechuan pepper in my actual beer. <laughs> Oh my gosh, spicy beer, why not? Why not? It makes sense. Uh, Emma, what's your recommendation today? My recommendation today is one I've made many times, but with a twist. So I want to recommend the White Noise from Upstreet, but the reason why I bring it up again, because I have recommended it before, is they're now selling it in six packs of the 355 milliliter can, so you can get them to go. I can't get them here in Ottawa, which I'm heartbroken about, but when I'm home, that's one of the things that's on my list that I'm really excited to get. And then one thing I have not tried, but I feel so confident in maybe recommending it or encouraging people to try it. This is something that Sweta had sent to me. It is a blueberry double IPA, also from Upstreet. It's called, I think, the Blue... Blue Meanie is what it's called. So I have not tried this, but I love IPAs and I love blueberries. So I'm really excited to try that one. And if someone who's listening to this has tried it already or tries it because of this and it's not good, you can forward all questions to Sweda Boo. Thank you. <laughs> I, I actually did try it and I liked it. So if you don't like it, we just have different tastes. Um, it's definitely a stronger like sipping beer, more of a let's... Uh, listen to music and sip this for two hours. Yes, with the pinky finger out, Emma, as, as you were miming right now. Uh, so it's definitely a sipping beer, but it's it's really good. My recommendation today, though, is an old uh, seasonal favorite from Upstreet as well. Um, I think it's probably my favorite beer. It's probably one of Emma's favorites as well. And every time it gets back in stock, we get really happy. And it's the Major Tom Sour. Of course, it's got the nicest packaging. I just love the little cat in the astronaut suit. And it's a lovely sour beer. It's, I think it was one of my first sour beers. So, so it's very close to my heart. Beer close to my heart, yes. Uh, but anyway, it's a great beer. You should drink it if you drink beer. Is it back right now? Uh, it was back like a couple weeks ago and I got a few bottles. So yes, hopefully still yes. <laughs> Upstreet, if you're listening to this, 
I am a diehard follower. Please save at least one can for Emma Drake. Thank you. <laughs> awesome. And with these recommendations, uh, we come to the end of yet another dialogue episode. Thank you again, Carrie, for joining us today on a beautiful Saturday morning and chatting with us about access to information and your latest article. I told myself I would talk shorter than I did last time. And I think I utterly failed in that. And for that, I apologize. But thank you so much for honoring me by having me on your podcast again. I don't think we realized how long it's been. It's been such a treat talking to you as always. So uh, I hope our listeners enjoyed it as well. Thank you so much, Carrie. It's always a treat. Thank you. Thanks, guys. We'll do it again someday, yeah? Yes. That's all the time we have today, folks. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you, Carrie, for the very candid conversation and many insights, as always. In other news, uh, Spotify Wrapped was last week, and we made so many of our listeners' top five podcasts. We didn't expect this kind of reaction when we started this little pod, so trust me when I say we were both very moved by the love. Thank you so much, everyone. Now, as folks have seen, the Spotify wrapped data has recently come out and the data has come in and said that 47 of you have dialogue with Drake and Daboo as your number one podcast. And you know what? That's just pretty friggin' cool. So thank you so much for listening. And for those who did not have us as number one, that's okay too. There's a lot of great podcasts out there and we hope to make it to number one too, folks next year. As always, our opening and closing music is by the very talented Shane Pendergast. Now you might be thinking the holidays are coming up. What should I get for that special someone? Well, you know what folks, it is a folk CD by Mr. Shane Pendergast himself. So go on to shamependergast.com to order yours. Stay warm, stay safe, happy December. This has been Dialogue.